What a great morning and what a great opportunity as we think of new life and as we think of uh, spring. Now that we had summer a for a couple of weeks, we're back to spring again. And it's good to see, as I was noticing, and I'm, I'm really enjoying looking at the trees outside. There's some blossoming over here. You can't see it over here probably very well. But then the trees are beginning to, uh, to leaf. And wow, what a great season of the year to be alive and to be here as the family of faith. Let's pray. God, as we spend these moments together today, I'm so grateful for your presence here. Grateful for the privilege and the joy of worshiping you as part of the community of faith, your body. And God, I pray now that as we spend these moments together, that they might not be centered on me or my words, but in a way that it's extraordinary, much beyond my doing, by the power of your spirit who becomes the go-between. I pray that you would speak to each one of us through your word. Speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We found out who two of the four of the final four are going to be. Did you realize that sports fans around the world can rely upon one fact in sports? And that is that the home team wins more than the visiting team. A 2011 Sports Illustrated article concludes, home field advantage is no myth. Indisputably, it exists across all sports and all events, from Japanese baseball to Brazilian soccer to the NFL. The team hosting the game wins more than not. Now, what explains that fact? You might have a theory that you're thinking about. A wealth of evidence disputes the most common theories behind home team advantage. For instance, thousands of cheering or jeering fans don't change the team's performance. On a number of statistics, such as the velocity of a baseball or free throw percentage, home team advantage didn't make a difference. Their research also eliminated other theories, such as uh, the rigors of travel for the visiting team or the, the home team's familiarity with the field, the court, or the rink. So what drives home field advantage, anyway? Well, according to the articles of this Sports Illustrated, uh, this Sports Illustrated article, officials bias. Did you hear that? I hope none of you are referees out here. Officials bias is the most significant contribution to home field advantage. In short, the refs don't like to get booed. So when the game gets close, they call fewer fouls or penalties against the home team. Or they call more strikes against visiting batters. Larger and louder fans really do influence the calls from the officials. The refs naturally, and often unconsciously, respond to the pressure from the crowd. Then they try to please the angry fans and make the calls that will lessen the pain of the crowd's disapproval. In the end, the refs' people-pleasing response can have an impact on the final result of the game. Now, 
While far from being an athletic event, to be sure, the sounds of the frenzied crowd had a huge bearing on the courtroom drama that we're going to look at this morning. The courtroom drama that is depicted in John chapter 18, the end of that, and the beginning of John chapter 19. The judge has to make the final call. In this case, it is the Sanhedrin versus Jesus of Nazareth. And it's clearly influenced by the vehemence of the righteous leaders as well as the crowd whom they have whipped up into a kind of mob mentality. While the Roman governor, Pilate, clearly wants to do the right thing, he bends to the pressure of the deafening noise of the spectators. As we continue this countdown to the cross, please follow along with me as I read from the first part of that courtroom scene in John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. And as I look at that and we look at it together, pay attention to one group and two individuals who will step into the spotlight as they play out their major roles. Also, pay close attention to see if you see yourself in the drama or with a particular group or as an individual. Again, please follow along with me as I read from John chapter 18, beginning with verse 28. If you have your pew Bibles or you brought your Bibles or from the screen, listen now for the word of the Lord. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, It was your people and your hot chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You're right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. 
Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. May God add his blessing, understanding, and then his application on this, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please join me now in prayer. We've already prayed. Forget that. That's not that we couldn't pray again, uh, please, but I, I just forgot that we just prayed. So, amen. Yes, thank you. <laughs> the first players in the spotlight are the religious leaders. These first players are the same people we have seen in action in previous weeks. In a nutshell, they are currently threatened and frightened by this young Galilean rabbi named Jesus. He doesn't have the proper pedigree. He doesn't have the credentials to be doing and saying all that he has become legendary for saying and doing in only a few short years. They think that Jesus is a fraud. Jesus would not be such a large problem if it were not for the fact that he was so popular and well-received by people across the societal spectrum. He is preaching with passion. He's teaching with clarity and authority. He's even healing people with a kind of tenderness that they had not seen before. Alarming numbers of people are following this Jesus, and he has become a kind of folk hero to the masses. While all of that was bad enough, it was something even more serious. Jesus, time and time again, has spoken against this group that we see in the spotlight, the religious leaders. He has undermined their authority. I mean, he clearly hit a raw nerve when he called them whitened sepulchers or whitened tombs, saying that they were dead on the inside and they were decaying. While it seemed imperative to get rid of this Jesus in some way at some time soon, he switched them to panic mode when he overthrew the tables and chased out the money changers from the temple. That was one of those defining moments as far as they were, they were concerned when he crossed the line. In order to preserve their very way of life, they had to get rid of Jesus. So as we look at this troubled group of people in the spotlight, carrying out their plan to have Jesus executed, we have to shake our heads in amazement. Knowing what we know this side of Easter, they had no idea that Jesus was really orchestrating all that was taking place. From the betrayal by Judas, to the illegal hearing in front of Annas, even to that very moment before the Roman governor Pilate, they were carrying out God's plan. When we look closely at these religious leaders as they stand there in the spotlight, we can see fear, we can see jealousy, we can see hatred, we can see paranoia etched upon their faces. Yet they're still trying to look good, that's for sure. They're trying to make sure it looks like they are keeping the law. I mean, even to the point that they're not willing to go into the palace or the palace of the Gentiles there would uh, certainly defile them and they couldn't take of the Passover the next day. There clearly is a double standard here with these people. 
We feel like shouting at them as if this was a, a melodrama. And we, were, we would shout at them when we see the villain come on the stage. And, and we would shout, you hypocrites! We are incredulous that they could do all of this in the name of serving God. Yet as I look at them, and I watch with a kind of righteous indignation and disdain, I get a sick feeling in the very pit of my stomach because I see myself up there. I see myself in their actions. If I had lived back then and I had been a religious leader, I might have been there in the spotlight with them. I know I can be a hypocrite, preaching one thing and doing another. I can have a standard for others and a standard for myself. I can go through all of the right motions as a religious leader. I mean, that's what I get paid to do. If you look really closely at that group of people, do you see yourselves there? If so, then along with yours truly, I believe we need to confess our attitudes and actions which are clearly hypocritical and judgmental. We need to humble ourselves before God, realizing that all of us are in desperate need of the forgiveness which Jesus attained for us on the cross. Now, the second player in the spotlight as we look at that drama is the Roman governor, Pilate. When we really understand the plot of the drama, we quickly realize that Pilate is in a bind. He is in a horribly tough place. Israel was a troubled country, and Israel would never be one's first choice for your tour of duty as a soldier or as a Roman governor. The first Roman governor had been sent in to maintain the peace in AD 6. Pilate's term of office started in AD 26, and it went through 35 AD. If the truth be known, Pilate was a failure as a governor. It all started at the very beginning of his term of office there when he visited Jerusalem. Now, Caesarea was the headquarters over on the coast. It was kind of the, the Roman headquarters there. And he visited Jerusalem, which they did on a regular basis, when he knew that the Jews were hyper about having any graven images of gods anywhere in sight, he didn't want to follow the customs of the other governors who had removed the image of the emperor from the standards, which is that pole which they would hold before the, before the, the, and march before uh, the different detachments of soldiers. Callously, he wanted to make a statement. He wanted to assert his power. So he was adamant about leaving that little bust of Caesar on the top of each of those standards. As might be expected, the Jews saw it, and they were enraged, and they would follow Pilate wherever he would go, and his soldiers, and they would be screaming at him. So very demonstrably, he threatens them and says, if you continue this, I'm going to abolish you. And basically, they bare their necks and say, go ahead and do it. He calls their bluff, or they call his bluff, rather. On another occasion, 
Pilate settled the problem of inadequate water supply in Jerusalem by building an aqueduct, which is what the Romans did very well. While at first blush that seems like a noble act, the problem was that he stole money from the temple treasury to do it. When the people found out about this, they rioted in resentment for Pilate's cavalier action. He had several of his soldiers in plain clothes mingle throughout the crowd as they were rioting. They had clubs and swords underneath their cloaks. And as they were, the people were frenzied, the signal was given, and they clubbed as well as stabbed several people to death that day to try to quiet the riot. In another incident, as a kind of a power play, Pilate had certain shields made for his soldiers with the name of Tiberius Caesar inscribed on them. The people pleaded with Pilate to remove the inscription. Stubbornly, he refused. The people appealed to Caesar, who quickly ordered Pilate to remove the inscriptions. One more complaint and Pilate would lose his office. So you see in that courtroom drama, as it unfolds, Pilate finds nothing wrong with Jesus, but he's in a tough spot. Certainly he would like nothing more than to release Jesus, to infuriate these hothead religious leaders. Yet Pilate knows that he's truly on shaky ground and would be committing political suicide if he let Jesus go. In essence, Pilate is being blackmailed right there before their very eyes. The great Bible scholar William Barclay put it this way when he writes about our man in the spotlight, Pilate. On that day in Jerusalem, Pilate's past rose up to haunt him. He wanted to do the right thing, but he did not have the courage to defy the Jews and do it. He crucified Jesus in order to keep his job. Do you see yourself on the stage, in the spotlight, in the person of Pilate? Again, I must admit that I do sometimes. Maybe we do what's politically correct or expedient and not what we know to be the right thing to do. Sometimes we're more concerned about impressing or pleasing people than we are about pleasing God and doing what we know is right. If you see yourself in Pilate, then once again, you can confess the attitudes and actions which might cause you to cave in and not stand tall for what you know to be true. The last person in the spotlight now is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Now, make no mistake about it, the man in the spotlight is a man's man. He's a rugged outdoorsman, a carpenter by trade who worked hard with his hands. He has been blindfolded, slapped, spat upon, cursed. The cruel Roman soldiers in the middle of the courtroom drama beat him mercilessly so that his back is raw, ruthlessly they form a crown of thorns and they force it down on his head. They mock him sarcastically, getting out all the venom of their hatred by shouting, Hail, King of the Jews! Pilate had all of this done 
hoping that he would satisfy the bloodthirsty crowd so that he could release Jesus. Listen closely to what the great Dorothy Sayers writes about this Jesus and his strength and prowess. The dogma we find so dull, this terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero, if this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Jesus never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up the shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently pared the claws from the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Those who knew him, however, objected to him as a, pious, as a dangerous firebrand. From the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, to the Passover meal, and the Last Supper in the upper room, to the betrayal of Judas in Gethsemane, to the moment before Pilate where they stand, Jesus was in control. There was never, it was never more evident than we see him last week before the Mafia Don Annas in the passage just before this one. Notice, even with his life on the line, Jesus has the courage to answer Pilate's first question with another question, which he does often. When Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? He says, are you asking this on your own or did someone ask you to ask this? This certainly wasn't the response Pilate was expecting. And deep down, I got a feeling that Pilate must have really admired Jesus' courage to stand up against these people. Quickly, Pilate counters with, I am not a Jew, am I? Your nation and your high priest have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answers that his kingdom is not of this world. If it were true, his followers would be fighting to defend him right now. Again, he makes it clear that his kingdom is not from this earth. Not understanding, Pilate's trying to track with Jesus, and he says, so you, you are a king. Jesus responds by saying that Pilate has said so. He goes on to say that his whole purpose is to testify to the truth. Anyone who listens to his voice listens to the truth. Then Pilate asks the question, a question which continues to ring down through the annals of history. What is truth? Little did Pilate know that he was facing the one who had claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He was trying the one who was sent as God's zenith of his revelation, God's divine self-disclosure at its very best. Carol Tharp, in a letter to the Chicago Tribune magazine, references Pilate's question as she ponders the world in which we live today. She says, Western culture 
has made a foundational change in its religious base. We have exchanged the one who said, I am the truth in John 14, 6, for the incredibly expensive doctrine of Sigmund Freud and words of all of his disciples. Our new religion says with Pilate, what is truth? And teaches our status as one of original victim rather than original sin. As you look at this Jesus in the spotlight, do you want to know him better? Do you find him to be kind of tantalizing? Do you want to talk with him through prayer, Bible study, worship, and service on a day-by-day basis? Do you want to practice his presence so that continually you are not only asking what would Jesus do, but you are doing what Jesus did? The drama comes to an end and the spotlights go out and you and I know the rest of the story. Jesus was crucified on a cruel, grotesque cross that day, emptying his life for us and for our forgiveness. He was buried in a borrowed grave. But on Sunday morning, he raised triumphantly from death to everlasting life. It is in this Jesus that we place our ultimate trust, the one who is the truth, making him our Savior and our Lord. It is in this Jesus that we discover the truth about ourselves and the truth about God's unconditional, gracious love for each one of us. Like Pilate, people in our world are asking the question, what is truth? When we see Jesus in stark contrast to ourselves and the stuff of this world, We see truth. While Jesus, as the truth, vividly shows how far we fall short of God's expectations for us, at least we know where we really stand. In the midst of our helplessness, he reaches out to each one of us in love and grace, wanting to bring us forgiveness for our past, peace, joy, and meaning in our present, and hope for our future. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit, this Jesus, the one who said, I am the truth, wants to be our companion as we journey through life. In answer to Pilate's question, have you experienced Jesus as the truth for your life? Or have you looked in other places which may feel easier, which may feel more politically correct, which may feel safer, which may feel less costly. Pastor and author John Ortberg uses this marvelous illustration when talking about truth. I quote, imagine picking up your car from the shop after a routine tune-up and the technician says, this car is in great shape. Clearly, you have an automotive genius to take care of your car. Later that day, the brakes fail. You go back to the shop and you say, why didn't you tell me? The technician replies, well, I didn't want to make you feel bad. Plus, to be honest, I was afraid you might be upset with me. I want this to be a safe place where you feel loved 
and respected and accepted. You're furious, you say. I don't come here for a little fantasy-based ego boost. When it comes to my car, I want the truth. Or, he says, imagine going to your doctor's office for a checkup. The doctor says to you, you are a magnificent physical specimen. You have the body of an Olympian. You are to be congratulated. Later in the day, while you're climbing the stairs, your heart gives out. You find out later that your arteries are so clogged that you were like one jelly donut away from the Grim Reaper. You go back to the doctor and say, why didn't you tell me? The doctor says, well, I know your body is in worse shape than the Pillsbury Doughboy, but if I tell people stuff like that, they get offended. It's bad for business. They don't come back. I want this to be a safe place where people feel loved and accepted. You'd be furious. You'd say, doctor, when it comes to my body, I want to know the truth. Obviously, he goes on to say, when something matters to us, we do not want illusory comfort based on pain avoidance. We want truth. Oh, dear friends, Jesus is the truth. He's not glossed over the human condition. He was blunt and honest. Yes, he came to be our way to forgiveness if we repent and confess our sins. He came to bring us life that is abundant and everlasting. If you would like someone to talk to afterwards, to find out what it means to accept this gift of truth in Jesus, or you'd like to pray with someone about what's going on in your life, there will be members of our prayer team in the little alcove right by the cross after the service is completed. As we count down to the cross, celebrate to the extent to which God was willing to go to point you and me to the truth. Just before I close, and I'm going to have a, a final prayer, and why don't you stand for that final prayer, if you would, and then I'm going to try to get out before you clog up the center aisle there so I can <laughs> greet you. Again, I want to invite you to come back uh, to the, um, for the congregational meeting later, and uh, that's very important that we have a quorum so that we can do the business we need to do. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you came as the one to show us what truth is all about. In a world filled with so many false truths, in a world where we want to be accepted and are willing to do that at any price, in a world where we feel entitlement and we feel victimized sometimes, oh, good and gracious God, forgive us. Help us to seek Jesus, the one who said he is the truth. I pray for each one here, I pray that you would go with each one and help each person here to know how much you love them and care for them. Help them to go as heralds of hope in the world in which we live this week. And now may the love of God our Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship, the courage, the comfort of God's Spirit go with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.